This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hi, how's it going? Come on. Come on, sit down here. There we go. Hello, good morning. Just before I start, ladies and gentlemen, I should explain there's a very strict no dogs apart from guide dogs policy at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and Tino is going to guide us into a very fruitful discussion. It <laughs> <laughs> well, was the dog sitting crisis, yes, indeed. Oh, there's one here as well. Indeed. Hi. This, this is, is not be... Bracken, just for people who are wondering. Uh, we had a bit of a dog crisis at home, dog sitting crisis. Uh, and so my wife's gone to London, so I suddenly ended up with, with her dog yesterday. And you're going um, to have to let me introduce you before you tell the rest of that story. Am I? Oh, right. <laughs> I thought they knew. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, so why it's else just compulsory. It's just <laughs> compulsory. Otherwise, I don't get paid. Oh. I'll sit here and be quiet. I'm normally in charge. I'm sorry. It's always the men, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Come here, boy. Come on, sit down here. My name is Ruth Wishart, and uh, it's my very great pleasure to be introducing two gentlemen uh, this morning. Um, as we all know, it's the, it's the custom of many cricket fans uh, to watch matches on TV with their ears firmly glued to the radio. And this is partly, of course, because uh, radio commentators will ply with much more detail about the match in question. But it's also because um, over the years, a programme like Test Match Special um, is not so much a radio show, more a club for the true cricketing believer. Or I'm not sure if I mean club or cult, but anyway. In any event, um, the voices which have graced this programme over many years has, have become very familiar and very well loved. And uh, listeners, I think, routinely accord them family status um, and uh, uh, they refer to them by an assortment of nicknames with the kind of nicknames really which should have gone out with Teddy Lester's school days, but somehow or other haven't. And this is perhaps because the sometimes schoolboy humour, of which rather more later, is garlanded by consummate professionalism and a transparent love and knowledge of the game and an unquenchable enthusiasm for their trade. Now, for many people, this morning's guest, the taller of this morning's guests, <laughs> is the commentator's commentator. Um, like many before me, came to cricket uh, broadcasting through a career in first-class county and test cricket. In one memorable year, he took 666 wickets and therefore became one of a select band who didn't mind having the figures 666 on his CV. <laughs> his work has taken him all over the world and he's won him all manner of awards. And one in particular for the most memorable sports commentary, uh, which came as a result of a legendary, a legendary exchange with the late, great Brian Johnson. And it still enjoys, <laughs> you remember it, obviously. <laughs> It still enjoys oh, airtime no, 22 years later, and it still reduces every rate to helpless laughter. So hot from the ashes, please welcome Jonathan Agnew. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now you can talk. Well, yes, I was going to say... Thank you, Ruth. Very nice introduction, Ruth. Thank you. Now, uh, where was I? You interrupted me. Um, Not like me at all. This is, this is, this is Tino. Uh, who's auditioning today for the role of Geoffrey Boycott. Um, <laughs> Hands had... up for Tino over Geoffrey Boycott. <laughs> I know, well actually, uh, that's by far the best. We've had a lovely morning though. Is it, I mean, a dog is so good for you. We've been out walking around Murrayfield, beautiful day today, and so we're back on the train again this afternoon, which is great. But it's lovely to be here. And thank you all so much for turning out. It's great to see you. And you will want to know that Tino, among other things he did this morning, has been round the back and found a tree, so we need to panic on that front. <laughs> Actually failed, but that's more than that. That's more than. Let's, let's go back to that, that, that first bit of the intro, uh, Jonathan, because radio um, is very magical, especially in terms of, of, of test match commentaries. And, and why 
does it matter so much? I mean, why has there this whole ethos of radio cricket commentary? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's, it's contact and it's communication. And radio reaches out and touches people in a way that no other medium does. I mean, I mean theatre does, if I'm honest. And I do do some with Geoffrey, Boycott and others. And, and that, that's amazing to feel an audience feedback, which, you do. OK, on the radio you don't quite get it that way, but you get it in all sorts of other ways. And I think the most important thing for radio is the listener experience and that they really feel, and this is where Brian Johnston was, was remarkably skilled, and there are very few who can do this. And it doesn't matter how many millions of people are listening at the time, each individual thinks that actually that commentator is just talking to him or her. And that's something that only radio can do. Um, I think television, in a way, gets more and more sterile in a way. It's much more analytical, much more replays, much more analysis of what's going on. Whereas I think radio, hopefully, still, you know, we can still just communicate and chat and, and have some fun in the total sort of ill-disciplined way um, that you can't on the telly. And people love that. You know, people, uh, I think listeners just, just enjoy the fact that you've got people that are having fun. It's totally unscripted. You don't know what's going to happen from one moment to the next. I know that, how you feel. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but that's, and, that, and that's a joy of the job. You know, I, I, I turn up to work without any idea of what's going to happen at all. And sometimes it's very challenging what happens. And, and you know, we do actually, you know, there are disciplines that are attached to our work. We're not, not just sitting and watching cricket and having a gin and tonic and enjoying it. I mean, you do actually have to work at the same time. So don't say surprise. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you do actually have to, have to work. Um, but there are other times, you know, watching England win the Ashes, for instance, um, although it's happening, I was going to say, all too regularly now. It's not all too, it can never be too regular. But, I mean, it's happened, it's, it's happened um, you know, quite a lot recently. But there's still the thrill in describing that. The other night, at, just down the road at mm. Chesterley Street, to be there at course to eight uh, and to describe being actually winning the Ashes is something that I hope I never, ever take for granted because you know, 25 years ago, I'd never have had the first thought that I was doing, uh, sitting there chatting, doing the programme that I listened to as a kid. And, and, and so I'm, I've been incredibly fortunate to, to have done I that. had the, the great good fortune to be allowed into that box once during a, a, a match um, on behalf of the newspaper for whom I was writing at the time. And um, I wondered how much of all the, the kind of paraphernalia you talk about was actually true, but I promise you, somebody did arrive with a cake. And, um, <laughs> we get lots of cakes, yeah? And then the lunch hamper arrived before he starts being sniffy about how arduous it is. But then the lunch hampers arrived. <laughs> and nestling amongst the rather nice lunch was a, you know, a half bottle of rather fine wine. Each, that is. It must have been. <laughs> it must have been a very long time ago that you were allowed in our commentary box. It was strict. No alcohol policy. Oh, really? Oh, yes. I'm glad I haven't been back. <laughs> but you have to. I mean, I, I love a drink as much as anybody. Um, but I could never, ever, and I can honestly say hand on heart, I could never have a drink and broadcast because mm. you just couldn't do it. If you, and if you Didn't ever, seem to stop Jonas, though. Jonas, if I, yeah, Jonas did have a glass or two. John Arlott had a bottle or two. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, but did it really help them? I don't know. I don't think it probably could. Probably not. I, I don't probably. think it did. I mean, I mean it, it added to the, you know, this whole picture of people having a, a glass or two and doing it. But as soon as, I have to be honest, when, when Brian died and we, we sort of moved into a new direction away, I, I said, come on. And, and, I, and I'm pleased that I did because you can't, you know, because if pe people do write in now and say, cool, blowers sounds like it had a few, um, <laughs> which it does sometimes, um, <laughs> I can say, well, he hasn't because he hasn't. He it's, says blowers. It's just natural. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, no one brings a game uh, a life like blowers does. It's, it's, 
it's often not the same game the rest of us are watching, but he does, he does. Because he does. He's not here, is he? He's in Edinburgh, isn't he? Is he here? No, he's not. Look, no, no, he's in town somewhere. I go and see a show, by the way. It'd be great fun. I just want to flag up one or two of the things that have happened in, in the very uh, recent past because, I mean, this, this book I may see, because I am um, a sports lover, but not... Um, all that knowledgeable about cricket, but the great thing about this book is it's, it's essays about cricket written by a whole variety of people, and it's an absolutely fabulous book to dip into, and it's taught me a lot. But what it didn't, um, what made me think about this question was, if you look at some of the earlier pieces, there's a whole thing about the spirit of the game. In now, the spirit of the game seems to me just as a kind of peripheral observer to have changed quite. Mm. Significantly, there's the you know the, the Stuart Broad not walking. There's the ball tampering. There's the match fixing. There, sure. did he or didn't he paint his bat so that the like DRS? Would I, I thought I was going to have an easy ride in there. <laughs> so, you know, has the game changed for better or worse? Oh, what a good question. Um, the spirit of the game is something that everybody who plays cricket understands. It's it's not something tangible. Um, and what's curious about the spirit of the game is that everybody, each individual, has their own interpretation of what it is. Um, it's not always been there. W.G. Grace clearly was one of the biggest cheats there's ever been. Um, the whole game was founded on betting and bookmaking and so on. And then there was the whole bodyline thing. Yeah. Yes, but that, well, that was, that was in the laws. That, I mean, that, that, I'm, I'm okay with bodyline. I thought the Australians were a bit namby-pamby about that, actually. <laughs> There was nothing wrong with bodyline. I mean, it was it, because it, it, it was. Unless you're the guy on the receiving end, presumably. Yeah, but we were. We stood, in the 1980s, I tell you what, they, you know, they only had Harold Larwood in 32-3. In the 80s, you had four or five of them coming in at you, you know? And, and so, was, was that in the spirit of the game? It was, it was legal. It was, it was probably. You know, it's a very fine line again. But it, was, it, it probably had to happen in order for the game to change. Now, as far as the spirit of the game is concerned, and it's been a really interesting debate, thanks to Stuart, um, who incidentally, I've known since he was a kid, and, and it's funny how these things on social networking now get, you know, Stuart and I have you know, obviously totally fallen out according to Twitter and so on. We haven't. I mean, Stuart is, I've known him from that high, well, that high, as a, <laughs> as a four-year-old. Um, <laughs> and, and so when he stood there at Trent Bridge that time, um, it was a real challenge because I had to do my job and, I, and I've always been very, not protective, I've kept a bit of an eye on Stuart because I, I know the family well and so on. So I, I, I just hated him for standing there because in my view he should have walked for that. I mean if, if you're caught at slip, um, you've got to go. You just have. Now what's interesting and, and where Michael Holding and I actually as two bowlers in the commentary box is one rather better than the other, um, <laughs> agreed. <laughs> Um, was because virtually everyone else you see in the commentary box is now a batsman who didn't walk. I mean, Jeffrey Boycott, Mike Atherton, Nasser Hussain, these people are not going to say he should have walked because you can just rewind a bit of footage and you can find Mike Atherton standing against uh, Alan Donald, you can find Nasser Hussain standing for everything. <laughs> so so it, did, it did create a bit of a, a bit Divide. of a lie. It did. And so uh, about two weeks after, and uh, yeah, Stuart and I, there was, there was a bit of messaging going on, and he wasn't happy. And I said, but, and I said to him back, Stuart, look, that's fine, but that is going to be the way that you have to play the game now. You can never complain about a decision again. against you again. Or indeed, when you're bowling or when you're batting, if that's, if that's where you're setting your line, because everybody has a line, 
then good luck to you, but you go and play to that and don't ever complain about anything again. The interesting thing about that, though, uh, Jonathan, was when you read the next day's um, written commentary on it, there were people saying, well, Stuart Broad couldn't walk because if he'd walked, he, uh, his captain would have been utterly furious. Now, I would have thought, <laughs> in another time, perhaps, that the captain would have been utterly furious if you cheated. Well, some did. Again, it's <sighs> to generalise is very difficult. Some captains believed that you should play like that. Other, others didn't. I mean, Australians have never walked. It's, it's just the way that they play cricket. They have never walked. Um, most English people did walk. Um, they, they probably tend not to now, although Stuart at, at Old Trafford nicked one and walked straight off and didn't look at the keeper. And I sent him a text saying, nice one. And um, he said, I don't know what happened. I'm never doing it again, he said. But, uh, <laughs> but he did. But the interesting was that about a couple of weeks after Trembridge happened, I did a, a dinner with Ricky Ponting and Michael Vaughan. And I knew, obviously, what line they would both take about walking. So I tried to, 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 to this illustrates the, the issue, really. I said, OK, so you're batting, and you hit a catch to mid-off, Ricky, and so you stand there, don't you? He said, no, mate, I'll walk off. Oh, I said, OK, so you walk for a catch to mid-off. And you, Michael, yeah, of course. All right, so you're standing there batting, and you hit a catch to point, Ricky. Do you stand there, or do you walk off? Well, I'll walk off. OK, so we went all the way down, and we got to first slip. <laughs> And he started to say, I know where you're going, mate. And I said, <laughs> I said so where, where's your line, Ricky? And, and why, why is it acceptable to walk for a catch to mid-off? And yet you don't walk to catch the keeper. There's only one reason. Is he trying to con the umpire? And that's, that's the only reason why people don't walk. So, but there is, even Ricky Ponting, there is a line beyond you, which you think is acceptable not to walk. But beyond all of that, you go. And I just thought that one with Stuart... But that wasn't a moral line. That's a line between the fact that you can hardly, you know, if you've been caught in the boundary, it's kind of obvious. Absolutely. That, you know, it's, but then it's not a moral is obvious. line, it's just what you can get it's, away The unfortunate thing about Stuart's is that it was obvious to everybody except the bloody umpire. <laughs> that, was what was, that, was, that was what was so frustrating. Well, I was commentating 100 yards away and I saw it. So I don't know, poor old Aline Dow. about this, of course, it not just in cricket, of course, elsewhere, but particularly in cricket this time, new technology was supposed to solve all these conundrums. Yes. And actually it seems to have created more debate than it's, than it, than it's solved. It has. And it's, it's rather spoilt it for me, if I'm honest, um, this summer, because every decision, even if it was subjected to the review system or not, has become an issue of debate. Yeah. The, the technology has failed. The human beings interpreting the technology have failed. The human beings out in the middle have failed. Um, oh, Ruth, you're going off the mic. Never mind. Uh, it's, it's just oh, been... No, don't worry. It's just been um, a really bad run, which is not entirely surprising in my view. I mean, I've always, I've always been anti the technology. And that's not because I'm a silly old... I hope not. I'm a silly old traditional whatever. I'm not. Um, it's just because I felt... I just they, wondered what, what you are going to use. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, babe, they, I just felt they were rushing it. And they're on an agenda, which I don't think technology is ready for. I don't see any point in having technology in any sport unless it's better than what, what is there already. I just don't see the point in it. Added to that within cricket, you've got the situation where you've got a batsman openly challenging an umpire's decision, or indeed a fielder. I mean, in cricket, that is just not the way the game has been played. It is, it is all about accepting the rough with the smooth. It's actually a very good education for kids. I think, 8 to 16, yeah. you know, not everything is, is right. Not everything's perfect in this world. You can get a bad decision today and get naught. You can get a bad decision next week, but end up getting 50. You know, yeah. you, you take the rough with the smooth, and that's just part of what cricket, I think, really offers. Um, and technology, you know, to see club cricketers, and I get a lot of mail and tweets and whatever from people 
saying, oh, we had a Ginston in our game the other day, some 10-year-old lad refused to go, you know, he was standing there saying, that's not out, you know, you've seen it on the telly. And, uh, you know, that's, that's never felt right to me. And it's an interesting challenge for football, where they've now brought in, of course, the goal line, finally, yeah. technology. People are saying far too late. But I can understand why it's taken them a long time, because as soon as that door is open, a fraction, it happened with cricket, we had line decisions to start with, and it, and it seemed straightforward, although even Ashton Agar was given not out at Trent Bridge. But as soon as that door is open that much, bang, you can kick it down. Because Except it, that in, in tennis, hockey's been pretty well successful. Because it shows what happened. And that's what goal line technology will do. It, it, and I think Hawkeye is brilliant for tracking what has happened, recording what did take place. But in cricket, they, it's using it to predict what the computer thinks will happen. Once, once it hits the pad... Do you think anybody was cheating with the hotspot? No, I don't. I don't. Um, it's interesting how that story blew up, really. Uh, I mean, people have always used tape on their bats. Um, but hotspot is... No, I don't think it would. I'll tell you why. Because it had a really good year, the last year, up to the start of the series, actually. People are still putting tape on the bats because it, it stops the edges from cracking and breaking. So something went wrong this year, including um, the, the fellows not seeing the marks properly. And a, a part of that debate, again, is that ridiculous. There are people at home sitting in the dark in their sitting rooms with a plasma screen like that. <laughs> and they can see, you know. But the poor old third umpire has got... You know, a little tiny little thing like this we have with the sun yeah. shining on it and, and so you can't you see and it, I know it's absurd but even down to that I've, I, mean, I have seen a third umpire press the wrong button that's how <laughs> that's how fallible human beings are and again you, you know that was crazy he gave a guy we were, on, we were in Pakistan in the World Cup and you could see this finger so, and it, it's Robin, remind Robin, me which one she is well yes <laughs> it was Robin Smith and he wasn't out but he went poof oh, and gave him out. I mean, he just, that, that's human frailty, and, and you, you, you can never remove it, can you? I, want, I, I can hear from the reaction you're getting, the audience are dying to have their way with you, and so I don't want to, um, figuratively Ruth, not, speaking. Not quite ready for that. But I don't, I don't want to uh, delay that, but there are just a couple of things I want to ask you about people with whom you've played or worked. I mean, you, you talked a minute ago about um, being a, a double act with Jeffrey, Sir Jeffrey, as, as he would like to be known. And um, yeah, well, I just want to read you a quote from the book um, because Jonathan's done very elegant introductions to all the essays and this is um, amongst the things he says about Geoffrey Boycott. He had all the classic shots, he just didn't play them as often as some people would have liked. <laughs> now this is a big mucker of Geoffrey's. I, I don't think he's read that yet. <laughs> well, Geoffrey, I mean, we are, we are an unusual and unlikely couple, aren't Indeed. we? People are always fascinated by the my relationship couple. with Geoffrey. Yeah. Yes, we are. And we are very different. I mean, he's 73, he's a coal miner's son, uh, very fine, de very dedicated cricketer. I'm 53, public school boy, farmer's son. Yeah, we are like chalk and cheese, but we are very good friends. And is it, he nice? It, <laughs> is he nice? Um, <laughs> what an eloquent silence that is. Well, he can be nice. <laughs> Just not very often. I mean, no, he can. He can be nice. And he, and he uh, and these, the theatre shows that I do with him, are, uh, they're amazing. And, and, and he comes out, when I mean, we've had 1,500 people in, at Manchester, for instance, he walks out and he's totally out of his comfort zone, which is quite rare for Geoffrey. And he's astonished by the reaction that he gets. I think he's surprised that, that people like him. I think radio has softened Geoffrey. I think it's, it's softened people's... Um, perception of Jeffrey, although he can still bang on, 
um, and frustrate people. I mean, not everybody likes listening to Jeffrey Boycott, but then people do. I mean, and he's, he's the best I work with at analyzing a batsman. He will look at a batsman, and within 10 seconds, he will say what's good about him, what's bad about him, what needs to be improved, and, and so on. Um, then yeah, sometimes meeting. when he was back, it was like watching paint dry. Yes, it was, Ruth, it was. Um, but other times it wasn't. He scored almost 100 before lunch against us once at Bradford. I mean, he had all the shots. He did. He was a beautiful player. But he didn't like getting out. <laughs> and the problem on the radio is, as I say, he, he, he forms this analysis or this view of something, but then he just drones on about it for the next, <laughs> the next 10 hours, you know. And he just, uh, Got to put everyone out of their misery. But he, he, he's, he's great fun. I mean, he, he is losing his memory. He honestly thinks he used to bat like Ian Botham. Um, <laughs> well, that's, that, was, that was what I was going to ask you, was whether it's better in the generality of things to be um, a boycott or a Botham. A boycott or a Botham? Well, they are chalk and cheese. Um, I know who I'd prefer to be stuck in a lift with. Which one? <laughs> Botham. Would you? Obviously. <laughs> For conversational purposes. Not after it's had the pork pies, Ruth. You wouldn't want to go in there. Would <laughs> Jeffrey would be very polite to you in the lift. There would be more space in the lift if, boy, if, if Boycott was in it. Um, both of them would probably punch his way out of it, so you'd have more chance of being saved. Which one... Yeah, I guess Jeffrey would be most boring, probably. That was where I was trying to go. Was it? Okay. But, uh, yeah. just, but no. just, we're going to put the lights up, um, John Smith. Just talk very quickly about um, captains, because, I mean, there's been a huge spread of, in terms of, I don't mean just in terms of skill, but in terms of the personalities who've captained England over the last, um, or even over the last decade. Yeah. But, I mean, of all the ones you've worked with or commented on, who do you think was the best captain as an all-round captain? Ooh, see, again, you're, going to all, you're, you're dipping a toe into all sorts of different areas there, you see. Well, all right. I mean, the person that I've in, most enjoyed working with as, as captain, and who I think had the most respect from his players, would be Strauss, um, who always, always fronted up with the press, even when he didn't want to. Always gave thought-out answers, even though he couldn't be bothered. Um, always... Um, a really decent bloke, intelligent. Um, I've got a lot of time for Andrew Strauss, and, and Peterson's treatment of him last summer was disgraceful. Um, Michael Vaughan would probably uh, tactically be, be the most astute, I would think, that I've worked with. But, I mean, I've seen a few off. I started with Graham Gooch in 1990, so all, all the ones that I've gone through there. Alistair Cook, I think, will be good. I mean, the, the problem that captains have now is that they get no practice, they get no experience. They get, they're not captains of their counties anymore. Yeah. And so they get, literally, because they're the next cab off the rank, oh, Alastair, you're captain of England now. Um, and I, I, think he will, I think he will become good. He had a, a poor game against New Zealand at Headingley, where tactically and in all sorts of ways, I thought England were right off the mark. And, OK, they got very bristly and cross about the criticism they got. In fact, he brought it up again with me a couple of days ago. But he has been a different captain since then. And so that's fine. As a, as a press man, you take a bit of flack every now and then. Did Strauss but it was, resign because of the, the Peterson saga? It was, a, it was quite a lot to do with it. It wasn't entirely to do with it. Um, and he had lost his form. And he knew, I think, that probably the time was up. But I, he, was, he was pretty upset by it. And I think the way that you can tell that was because he, he has referred to it a number of times since. And because Andrew is a, a diplomatic sort of bloke, 
I think he would have just you know, put it away to one side. But he, he, he does refer to it still. So I think probably that... Well, it would hurt you, wouldn't it? I mean, he was sure. such a respected captain. And he had, there was no reason for one of the members of your own team to be texting the opposition. And, and slagging you off. It was just... Well, I just think about this. I mean, I know I'm in no position to claim the moral high ground as a Scottish football fan, given the number of... Um, and rugby fan, the number of coated Kiwis and so forth that we have. But does it matter um, to the English team and, and the, the team spirit that one of their most prominent um, players is, is self-evidently still a South African? Well, I think he... Uh, what was worrying about those messages was that he appeared to confirm the fact that he is he's got the foot in that camp. Whereas Jonathan Trott, I always feel very sorry for old Trotty. Um, he, he, he is as English as he could be. You know, he, and he always gets rather tarred with KP's brush, I think, as soon as that issue comes up about South Africans. Because, of course, when I was playing, our team was full of South Africans as well. Uh, the Lam, Lam, Lammy and the Smiths and co. But they couldn't play for South Africa. They were, they were, they were barred. And so I don't, I don't blame them for trying to find international cricket. It's been a flaw with the South African system that they brought this quota system in, which yeah. meant that people like Peterson, Kiesvetter, Trot, although they'd played representative cricket for young South Africa, although Kevin Peterson hadn't mm. actually, but, but Trot and Kiesvetter had done, they saw a brighter future playing county cricket where they're not fighting against, you know, the number, they couldn't have four white players in a team and so on. That was a big mistake that the South Africans did, I think. Um, and that's why the, the drain of players came here. But I don't, think, I don't think there's that much resentment. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an easy sort of prodding point and when one of them does something like KP certainly people say well I'm not surprised because he's South African but then those same people will be watching him bat and enjoying him bat so you know he made his decision he came here some years ago when we first saw the disloyalty thing though it was the whole disloyalty thing that yes. I think irritated absolutely people. oh absolutely and then the fact that he's blamed the media for it I mean to attend a KP press conference now is, is it's amazing it's fantastic I mean he ought to sell tickets because <laughs> it is such a disdainful uh, performance. Uh, it, it, I mean, we, we, were, we, were, we were the ones that were texting the South Africans, you know, it was all our fault. Of course you um, were. Yeah. So he, he's, he's sort of, that's where he's put the blame, which is fine, you know, I guess you have to, you know, you, you have to come to terms with it somehow, but he, he's, he's, it's, it's, it's a curious performance. Okay, well, let's have the lights up and get some questions from the, from the floor. There's two mics, um, ladies and gentlemen, as the recidivists amongst you will know, and if you could just wait till one of them arrives. Um, I see that one in the front, but let's let's start over there because I always get He's accused fine, of not having not having any questions for Tino as well. By the way, I'll take if you like. I should say, by the way, that Jonathan's got four dogs, and one called Bracken has a Twitter account, um, but Tino doesn't. No, so, he doesn't. Uh, so anything that comes out of the tent this afternoon, this morning, didn't come from him. <laughs> hi, hi, I guess. Um, Hello. This, this is a question for Tino, actually. Right. <laughs> We're all quite sad about um, Tim Bresnan's injury, which has put him out for the rest of the season. Obviously, it's Jonathan Trott's fault. Um, but who would you replace him with? Um, and, and more possibly differently, who do you think they will replace him with? Yeah, good call. I, I, well, I think on both answers, will give the same. I think they're desperate to get Chris Tremlett back in the side. Um, he's been, I mean, he hasn't had a, a, a great season for Surrey, but... They'll, love, they'll want to take him to Australia. Uh, Stephen Finn uh, has just lost his way a little bit at the moment. They want to, I mean, they'll probably take both to Australia again, like they did last time. Big, tall, fast bowlers. Because I imagine that the only way the Australians, on this experience, will consider they can beat us this winter is by having hard, bouncy pitches. 
bit of grass um, and try and take us on. I, I, they're not going to win the games otherwise. They're not, if there's any dryness, reverse swing, if there's any turn, Graham Swan, that, that's the only way they can beat us. So we're going to have to take that. And Tremlett's been on, I mean, we thought he was going to play at Lords for a moment. All the build-up and preparations and so on looked as if he was going to play. So I, I would imagine that they'll probably play him. It's a shame he didn't play Onions, actually, at, at Chesterley Street, who had bowled very well there. I mean, he's not an oval man, I don't think, looking at the usual way the pitch is run there. Um, but he's, he's, he's a good man, Onions, isn't he? I mean, he's, just, he's done everything that he could ever do. He's sent away time after time. He goes picking up wickets for for Durham, who had bowled very well on that pitch the other day. Although, having said that, of course, Bresden's contribution was, was immense as well. So, uh, you know, it, but it's a shame. Stress fractures are quite bad news. I was on the train. I actually rather missed the whole story of this, but... Um, Lower back stress fracture. I, 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 I know. But I knew it was that. There you okay. go. Can we have somebody from over here, um, just that's near the mic, and then if you keep your hand up, we'll go... The lady yeah, here. Yes. And we'll go to this gentleman next. Hello. Thank you. Very nice to be called a lady by um, thank, Can I say thank you to you and all the TMS team, team for all the pleasure you've brought over the years. It's a pleasure. It's fantastic. Um, um, I just wanted to ask, um, the England cricket team, I think in particular, seem to be incredibly boring to interview these days. And um, David Warner and Chris Rogers in particular, I thought were an absolute breath of fresh air, though in very different ways. Um, who over the years have been your favourite cricketers to interview? Good question. OK, well, our first answer um, is you're right. Um, <laughs> with one or two exceptions. But they have been... And I go back to that head of new test I was talking about, actually... Um, from that moment on, very prickly. Um, and I think they really struggled with being favourites for the Ashes for a start. And so they went into this real bubble. Um, and uh, some of the interviews that have been given since then have been bizarre, really, um, and silly. And in fact, at Manchester, the, we'd all had rather enough. And so we did play, uh, by means of contrast, David Warner's interview which was lovely. For someone who'd been, who spent his, his, the, the days being booed, um, he gave a lovely interview about, you know, I'll win them over, I want to be loved. And it, it was terrific. And we did play Kevin's press conference. Um, not necessarily, we didn't flag it up as saying, here's one and here's the other, but you can make up your own minds. Um, they are coached and they are uh, more or less told what to say, which takes a lot of the, I mean... Graham Swan will say what he wants to say, which is fine. Stuart actually will say what he wants to say. Um, Alistair's getting better. But the rest... <laughs> it's, not, it's, not worth, it's, it's barely worth turning the machine on, you know, really. Because you know what they're going to say. Um, so, you know, that's... I, I wish they would let them go a bit. But it is so controlled. And there's a bit of a do at the moment with the media. There's, and if you read your newspapers, there's an awful lot of sponsored interviews going on at the moment. Which, again, is... That's not journalism. You know. So they are trying to control the media, the ECB. Um, it does mean that we get, on a tour, for instance, we'll get given a player to interview. It may be anybody, Stephen Finn. And you think, well, why? <laughs> um, but that's what you get, that's what you're given. All the newspapers will have exactly the same quotes. And it's, it's pretty tedious, frankly. But at the end of a day's play, we get a player put up, and you try and get something out of him. But, I mean, even Graham Swan this time, and it showed, I think, it, it, everything came to a head, and actually there, there were words said before this last Test match, and there was a change. 
But even Graham, when he was asked the other day about the bats in Bresden being night watchmen, which is a change, you know, Jimmy Anderson had done it, Bresden can bat. Why is he night watchman? What was the discussion? And even Graham said, oh, I don't know, I wasn't in the dressing room at the time. You know, think, oh, you know. Um, but however, to answer your second question, he's one of my favorites because he's a great character. And he will end up uh, in, in a commentary box somewhere. Is his Swanee Diaries last time, which I think are being rehashed out of the sprinkler, which I'm not doing again. Um, God, that was, that was embarrassing. Let's take another couple of questions. We've got a gentleman here with the mic and a gentleman there with the mic. Let's start off with this one. Yeah, Jonathan, yes, I've been up uh, here all week, uh, as no doubt have many people in this audience, and so I missed the goings-on, for want of a better word, trying to follow it on my iPhone app on yes. Monday afternoon, particularly that last session. So can you just give us a quick flavour? Because clearly the whole ashes, the fact that we now are 3-1 ahead, or 3-0 ahead, sorry, all happened, am I right, in the last session? What day was Monday? Oh, that, was, that was the, that the, one was the last day. The last day. Yes. I can't remember. We, we've been going for about six weeks. Quite. Monday was the last day, wasn't it? I get confused because they all sort of different days now. Well, it was. I mean, at tea time, one twenty for one, I mean, 299 was always going to be too many to score, if we're honest. I think it would have been Australia's ninth highest ever run chase fourth inning. So, I mean, that, you know, and the pitch was doing a bit. However, 120 for one, um, Jeffrey Boycott um, had announced that England were going to lose. <laughs> so, um, so I, what could go wrong? I quite enjoyed, I quite enjoyed reminding him of that later on, which of course he then miraculously had forgotten he'd ever said that. <laughs> uh, so he weren't listening properly. Um, <laughs> But then, the, the obviously, words are said in the dressing room, uh, which, again, disappointingly, Andy Flower was asked, come on, what was said in the dressing room the other day? You know, what spurred them up? Well, what's, what's said in the dressing room stays in the dressing room. Think, oh, OK. Yeah, but something was said to, to, to G them up. I suspect, I mean, it was to do with the length of bowling and, and Stuart Broad, who then came on and just bowled absolutely brilliantly. But, he's, I mean, he's done this before. When Broad, who's a very competitive young man, I mean, his dad was very competitive, his mum's very competitive. They, he, he has this massive sort of force within him that at times he, do, he does just need to rein back a bit. Um, but when it's going positively, you can't stop him. And he, he produces these incredible spells. He bowled at 91 miles an hour, uh, which is fast, um, from six foot seven, wind behind him, pitch going up and down, and he just blew them away. And that's always, if you look at the stats, it's very interesting of this series. I think I'm, off the top of my head, there have been, I think England have taken something like eight more wickets or something in Australia. The top batsmen on either team, the two batsmen scored about 30 more runs in England's case in Australia. I mean, if you look at the actual nitty gritty, it's incredibly even. However, we just always known that Australia could be blown away, as they've now had happened twice. So it was, it was brilliant. And we so wanted it to end on that day because of the full house and, you know, those, those things need to finish on the roll, really. So everyone can, can enjoy it and it's brilliant. The iPhone app's very good, by the way. Should keep persevering with that. I'm a relative of the late Freddie Truman, come from the same mining village, and in the days of gentlemen and players, right. uh, I don't know whether you could share any anecdotes about what you've heard or what you maybe experienced in those days when you had professionals and the gentlemen. But we were convinced there was a period, quite a long time, we were convinced that Freddie wasn't selected because of his class background. Possibly, there's an entire chapter devoted to gentlemen and players in there, um, and the role of it. Which is, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, to think that it, what 1961 or two was it actually ended? It's not that long ago. Ridiculous anachronism, though, surely. Yeah, yes, it was, and the, and the the old amateurs, of course, were mainly the batsmen, um, well-heeled, who would turn up with their stripy caps and blazers, and 
Um, well, of course, we're captains. I mean, right up until the, the early 60s. Um, uh, of course, Len Hutton was the first pro, wasn't he? Um, the pros were the bowlers, generally, um, who did all the hard work, did all the bowling. And they had different dressing rooms, different gates, and it must have been a really weird way to play cricket. But Fred, see, Fred, I mean, I loved working with Fred. I'd love to have seen him bowl. Um, the most amazing action, wasn't it? I mean, he must be the best English bowler there's ever been, and that's, I'm saying that slightly with the breath of James Anderson, but you look at, look at Fred's figures, 18 point something per wicket. I mean, that's unbelievable. Um, as and a he was so modest with it, wasn't he? Well, that's... <laughs> That's something he discovered perhaps later in life, uh, to a minimal extent. No, I, I loved working with Fred. Um, he, he, I think, was blamed for things. If, if, and again, if, if, you, if you read, there's a brilliant biography on Fred Truman, some of which is in there. And if you read, particularly, the, there's an ill-fated tour of the West Indies, in which he was blamed for various things, which I think are pretty clear he, he wasn't actually responsible for. But he did go out to... Uh, you know, he, he, would, he would have an argument rather than, than, than you know, let things lie, would Fred. But that was part of the, part of the charm of the man. You know, I, I, I do miss dear old, dear old Fred, but um, thankfully the amateurs and the players are long gone. Just, if you are a relative, so if you could just take the mic back, can you tell us anything about Freddie from, uh, oh, yes. that we don't know? I was closer to his younger brother, who was equally a, a good bowler, Dennis. Right. But I, I, I love the stories. I mean, there were stories made up that Freddie never, never did, but there were others that he did. I mean, uh, his comments to batsmen, it was too good for the lad. Uh, enjoyed that, but uh, that's, that's all I'd like to share anyway. Thank okay, you. Okay, thank you very much. Somebody, no, we've lost track of the other mic now. Somebody on the aisle there, and then somebody up the back. Thanks. Um, I just wondered what Mrs. Agers thinks about you going away for three months every winter. And could you give me any tips as to what... <laughs> Very good question. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, <laughs> I don't start answering that. She's got four dogs. So. She has. I mean, she, she's, my, my, if you know anything about my wife, she's very independent, uh, is my wife. Uh, actually, I mean, I couldn't do the job without her, being serious. I really couldn't. Um, she's, she's brilliant. Um, she, she waves me off, uh, perhaps a little too enthusiastically these days. <laughs> um, but it, it is a hard part of the job, if I'm honest. And, and first time around, I'm sure many people, if they listen to the Desert Island Disc, they all know that I'm second time around. And therefore, when you have kids, it's, it's a really difficult job, this. And if you look at my colleagues and my experience, is that you tend to go into this job maybe when you're 30, say. And you probably have a, a girlfriend or a young wife, and everything's marvellous, and they can come out and spend the tours with you, and it's, it's great, it's the best job in the world. Then you have kids, and that's it for 16 years, because the only time they can possibly come is school holidays. Um, it's prohibitively expensive. You've got to fly them, you've got to find hotel rooms. You know, just, it, it is not, you know, the BBC does not pay for you to have airfares or rooms for your wife. So, I mean, it's your children. We actually share the same room. Um, but, uh, so that's when problems come in this job, obviously. Now, thankfully, Emma and I are through that bit. Um, and I got news yesterday that finally the youngest is going to university in September. So that's the lot gone. Hurrah, we were free. And so she can, she'll come and 
I remember seeing the Marlers, the old Robin Marler and his wife Jill, who are fantastic characters. Robin wrote for the Sunday Times for many years. And when we first got together, they were sitting under a palm tree on a beach in Barbados. And Emma and I, we said, that's one day, one day, that's what we're going to be doing. And um, we're not quite as old as that yet. But you, you, I mean, she comes out. She, uh, she'll, she'll come for maybe three weeks to Australia now. Um, and that's great. And you, you, you earn that, I think, because there were some quite hard years down the line. We were off for three or four months at a time. Is somebody at the back there? There's a couple at the back. Yep. Looking into the future. Sorry. Well, right, there you go. Hello. <laughs> Looking into the future, and it's something you've touched on your, in your book on uh, Thanks Johnners, about the young players and possibly going down the football track. Um, with the frequency of fixtures, the money, right? Do you see in the future us or cricket perhaps going a little bit down that way? In terms of what, what, what behaviour or...? Uh... In, in becoming stars, lock, locking themselves away. Oh, I see. And, uh, um, well, I do hope not, because while I've given the ECB a bit of stick for the way that it um, runs its sort of um, PR machine, what, they, what the ECB also does is that it does encourage a relationship between the press and the players, which is something that my colleagues in football just do not have. I will um, travel with the players, stay in the same hotel as the players if I, if I want to, and I don't always want to, and they don't always want me, so I tend to um, alternate. So if I'm on a tour of Australia, I will start, um, we start in Perth, so I'll probably have that first week with them. Then we go to Hobart, and I'll probably have a week away, and then we go to Sydney, and I'll probably have the week with them then, and the first test I certainly won't. So you don't see too much of them, and they don't see too much of you. However, in, in football, they're not even allowed in the same town. You know, the, the, the football correspondents are just away. So, and, and the cricketers are nice lads. They really are nice lads, and, they, and they're young lads. They're a bit impressionable, uh, and they do what they're told. I mean, if they're told by their employers, this is what you're going to say, yeah, I'm going to try and bowl in the right areas, then they're going to say, yeah, I'm going to try and bowl in the right areas, and that's all they're going to say. But the, the, the other half of that gentleman's question about the, the money side of things, because, I mean, especially with the Indian League, I yep. mean, there's huge amounts of money now being thrown at cricket players. There are, and what we've got to try and do, and I think so far English cricket has managed to do that, is that, you, that they've kept control. I mean, a lot of the, the Kevin Peterson issue last summer was, you know, Stra it was actually nothing to do with the Strauss thing. It was to do with him wanting to play IPL, for which he earns an awful lot of money. And I don't bl blame him at all for that. But if you're going to go and play IPL, then you can't pick and choose playing test cricket for England. A, because actually that's what matters. And B, if you're Andy Flower or Alistair Cook, you, you, you cannot run a team in which you've got someone dipping in and out. As you uh, please. Absolutely. That's just not the way that you run a, a national team. I know that I've had an interesting debate with one of my taxi drivers here uh, yesterday. I think I understood about one word in ten. Um, <laughs> but we were discussing the great football situation of club versus country. And, I, and I, I don't think cricket could ever become like that because our counties just haven't got the money. That, that football clubs do have. But I'm all, for, I'm all for the cricketers earning good money. I think it's fantastic because I want more people to come and play cricket. And I think you know, when I was playing, 70s, 80s, we lost an awful lot of good cricketers who had come up, got a good education, perhaps had a degree, and they had the choice of going to earn £10,000 playing county cricket or going into the city and getting a, a decent job. And I think we lost a lot of good players as a result of that. So if cricket can offer a good salary, a good wage, and a genuine alternative, 
that, that, that has to be a good thing. But as far as it becoming sort of footballized and uh, you know, that sort of unpleasant side of it, I, I, I don't think that'll happen. I, I mean, I, I could be proved wrong, but there are big efforts being made to make sure that it can't happen. You realize, ladies and gentlemen, that there is somebody in this city who can now walk around legitimately saying I had that Jonathan Agnew in the back of my cabin. Well, I don't think he knew either. I don't think he knew, <laughs> I don't think he knew who I was. Have we got somebody over here? Yes, there's a hand there. Thank you. And then one on the aisle. Hi, Jonathan. There. Hello. I was at the Ashes uh, on Saturday. And I haven't been to a game for many, many years. And I was um, pleasantly entertained by the Barmy Army. And I'm wondering... You were down at the bottom end? I was, yes. Okay, and feeding the snake with all the cups. And oh, things. yes. And, and I'm just wondering what your, your opinion is of the Barmy Army, whether you think that's, uh, they're an addition to the game or, or um, something that you just have to put up with. <laughs> um, I think my view of the Barmy Army is probably the same as everybody else's, which is when they're over there... <laughs> They're fine. When they're here, and you're trying to work, in my case, and you just get that chanting straight into your microphone all day, um, they're a pain. Um, but, no, I mean, they, they, there, is, there should be no distinction, and there sometimes is, and again, this is where the players must be careful. There's no distinction between those who go and support them from the Barmy Army, or those, in fact, who do it through a you know, travel agency and actually spend a lot of money. You know, there's a huge number of people who do that. There'll be thousands in Australia. And so I do try and remind the players when they go and you know, thank the Barmy Army at the end, don't forget all that all over there who are also coming to do it. You know, so, but no, I, th I think they're great. I mean, the, the, the trumpeter debate was an interesting one at Trent Bridge. Um, and Billy Cooper is a, is a great lad. He plays that trumpet really well. But it's not, Trent Bridge is not that sort of a ground. And I, and, what kind of a ground do I tell you, well, because you can have different grounds, and it's, and Lords isn't that sort of a ground. You don't want somebody playing a trumpet and chanting at Lords, and and Trent Bridge is also really intimate. It's a, it's a, just a different atmosphere to Headingley or Old Trafford, uh, the Oval. You can you can play a trumpet Are at the Oval. We talking ground snobbery here? No, which is why I brought a southern ground into it quickly. Um, <laughs> you can, I'm a diplomat, you know. I work for the BBC. Um, you, big open grounds, go and blow your trumpet. That's fine. But smaller grounds, and they've, they've really they've spent a lot of money at Trembridge. And if people have, have people been to Trembridge recently? I mean, do you want someone blowing a trumpet in Trembridge? It's lovely, isn't it? And that's that sort of atmosphere. If you, to, if you want to go and blow a trumpet, go to somewhere else. But if you want that sort of atmosphere, Trembridge has worked really hard at creating something special. Hmm? Lodge is quite big. Yeah, but again, it's, not, it's just not that sort of atmosphere. Lodge is fantastic. It's a beautiful sound. We open our window at Lodge. And that noise just comes in. 30,000 people, just as that lovely burble. It's a, it's a great sound. And we're the only ones, of course, who open our window because we're the only ones at the window. But it's, it's, a lovely, it's a lovely, lovely atmosphere. And, no, I mean, the Barmies, particularly overseas, on the big Australian grounds, are fantastic. They galvanise English support. A lot of people I know, they go and stay in their four or five star hotels. They do you know, all the posh travel. And then when no one was watching, they nip round and they you know, put the shorts on and the t-shirt, and they go and they go and do the Barmy Army stuff, and they have a great and they have a great time, and, that, and that's and that's fantastic. But as long as they don't ruin the experience for people who actually don't want that sort of stuff, as long as they're not swearing and shouting and vomiting and carrying on, well, that's that's fine. But the trumpet uh, and that sort of a, a thing, most grounds it's fine. But I think each test ground should be able to create its own stamp. At least just spear the bagpipes. <laughs> um, that would be that would be a, that would be a step too far. Gentlemen on the aisle there. 
Jonathan, a slightly technical question that I didn't hear on TMS discussed. Uh, Agar scored 90 at number 11 for uh, Australia. 98, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, just over that. And, and it reminds me of the Fred Truman story as well, in the sense that uh, couldn't we get him out because we'd never seen him. He was batting number 11, so we all decided, uh, the English bowlers that is, uh, that uh, he's a number 11, he can't bat, so this will be easy, lads. Yeah. Uh, gets to 98 and eventually... Uh, Stuart figures out that if you bowl short at him just outside Legston, he might actually do something silly. Yeah. So, I think they should they, they should certainly have, have have got into him more. I think they thought the job had been done. They didn't know this bloke. And actually, it's frustrating bowling at tail end is actually something that Fred Truman did brilliantly. Uh, apparently, I'm sorry, but, uh, but you know he, he used to knock him over. Um, and it is, but it is easier said than done. You, you you try and bowl them out, you bowl a bit too full, uh, and then you try and go other ways but I, I think that was a fair criticism that day of Agar but what I mean what an extraordinary contribution he made I mean we, I, I hope he comes back I mean his bowling's got a way to go and, and it was a strange selection um, whether there was trying to be a bit left field to try and create a bit of uncertainty or whatever I don't know but it was a strange one but for him to come in with no one really having seen him before uh, to score 98 was unbelievable, wasn't it? I mean, I, I wish he got his hundred. I, I, you know, I really do. And then got out afterwards. Fine, but uh, <laughs> it'd have been great if he got his hundred. It'll be a quiz question one day, won't he? Gentleman at the back there's got a mic, I think. Do you think the future of um, the Test match is secure? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I obviously hope so. It's an interesting aspect of doing what, what I do to go around and you see parts of the world where Test cricket is, is struggling, and that's even with our support. I mean, you know, we go away and, and we do take it. Even to Pakistan, we were taking hundreds of supporters with us then when we used to go there. So even in, in, in areas where you know Test cricket is struggling, we get a slightly inflated feel about the numbers that are there. Now, New Zealand, for instance, last winter, they play on this lovely small grounds. And it, there's a great atmosphere because we had three or 4,000 people there, and there were a few Kiwis. And of course, it showed up when he got to Eden Park, this massive rugby ground, because our people were swallowed up and there was no one else there. So, they, although I'd hate it to happen um, everywhere, this system they have introduced for the women is quite an interesting thing. For, for countries in which Test cricket is, is struggling, uh, or in fact, for countries like Scotland, for instance, or an Ireland, for instance, that are trying to develop to become Test playing countries, the women at the moment are playing for the Ashes, playing one test match and then they're playing three 50 over games and three 20s I think that's right and you get six points for winning the test match which ended as a draw in fact and two points for winning each of the one-day internationals you tot them all up and that's how that series is decided which I think is rather a good thing because it also gives context to one-day internationals in my word we see a lot of meaningless games in that but if it was Ireland Scotland for instance that's a nice little I don't know two and a half weeks worth of cricket you could play for something at the end of it, and you're going to play one test match. You couldn't play three because there wouldn't be the demand for that, there probably wouldn't be the facilities for that, there certainly wouldn't be the television revenue for that, but you could, you could play one, and it might just you know, improve the game. So I'd, I'd rather like that, and it could happen with Bangladesh and Zimbabwe. You know, there's countries where test cricket really is looking rather pointless, rather than have that inevitable breakaway, which I suspect might happen one day. Um, which it is just the big four or five playing tests and then the rest of it is purely one day internationals which would be horrendous frankly. We've been given a slightly um, a slight over stay here because we, we started late but I can take one more question who's got the 
That, that poor chap said his hand up for ages back there. Um, the American, you hear me? The American broadcaster Howard Cassell once spoke about, he coined the phrase the jockocracy, where he talked, he complained about broadcasters were increasingly employing former players rather than professional journalists or broadcasters. Um, in my opinion, cricket's one of the few sports where actually that doesn't seem to be a problem because the former players are generally very good commentators and analysts. But I wonder two sort of parts. Firstly, what your view is on getting the balance between former players and professional journalists right. And secondly, why does it seem to work in cricket, whereas other sports like rugby and football, it generally doesn't work? I'm glad you said cricket because I thought you were an Australian for a minute. You're a New Zealander, right? Yes. yes good lad. No, I thought. <laughs> Always as well to check. I thought for a minute you're an Australian. New Zealand have a great way of saying cricket, and it's cricket, and I gave it away, so it's fantastic. <laughs> I was going to give you some stick otherwise. No, it's a, it's, it's a really good question, and, and some of the finest broadcasters on cricket have, have only played at, at, at club level. You know, CMJ, Brian Johnston, John Arlott. You know, these people didn't play test cricket by any means, and in fact, until Ed Smith started doing it on TMS, I think I'm the only one to have played test cricket. I didn't play very much. So I think in radio, you, you still have this very set pattern in which you have the ball-by-ball -ball man, and then you have the expert. And he, and he needs to have played test cricket, because, you, you know, because, he, because he, he needs to tell you what's happened. And there, there are some times when I have someone beside me who perhaps you know, hasn't played. And, and I think David Gower feels this on Sky sometimes. I mean, he's asking such obvious questions that he knows the answer to. So I, th I think in some ways it's better to have that fellow, someone who hasn't played. Writing-wise, I'll I, I move on. Television, you definitely need to have played test cricket. You, you have to now. Um, there's so much analysis, so much slow motion replay, so much what's going on down there. Um, you know, Rongans, Dutras, how to play it. I, I don't think somebody who has not played at the highest level, I don't think they can cope with that anymore. I'd love to see a woman on... on on television, because they could certainly do it, and that would be a way of not having a sort of continual line of test-playing blokes. No reason why Charlotte Edwards, or the, or, you know, when, when she finishes, for instance, she she could quite happily do um, television. I do hope they take a woman on. Um, Writing-wise, I think it's really important that, again that you have people who have not played, because they can be often the most incisive. And the example I use uh, is Martin Johnson, who you may or may not know. He's a very funny writer. He started at the Leicester Mercury with me, and I've known him for years. And he then went to the Independent, Daily Telegraph, he now writes the Sunday Times, very acerbic. And this is a case in which he, having not played the game, could see something that me, having played the game, found ridiculous. But I had to concede. It, the, the, the man was David Gower, and in the 90, 91, that sort of time, he kept getting out against Australia, particularly with his head down, the, the outside the leg stump, and he was swishing away, often caught behind. They put a leg slip in there, and he was also caught down at fine leg. And Martin Johnson had it and said to me, they're doing it on purpose, they're bowling to a plan. And I said, Martin, it's rubbish. You do not, you do not run up and bowl deliberately down the leg side. You just don't do it. I'm sorry, you, know, you don't know what you're talking about. We came to Adelaide, which was the match after he was being fined for flying the aeroplane. <laughs> and morale was low and uh, humour was even lower and he got out just before lunch with Graham Gooch at the other end doing that to a leg side ball caught down on the boundary at fine leg and not only did Graham Gooch I think just completely give up at that stage but I went to Martin Johnson and I said you're right 
they're doing it on purpose, unquestionably. So, you know, that's just one example, I think, of somebody who just looks at something completely through a non-player's eyes but loves the game and has watched it for years and played a bit of club cricket, um, pulled one over on someone who, who, just because you've got your sort of professional cricketer's head on, it just didn't make sense. But, hey, you know, that's, that's the game. You need, you need everything, is the answer. You need, you know, someone like Simon Mann, who works with me on, on TMS, lovely bloke, good club cricket, understands the game, um, he can contribute just as much as someone like me who's you know, had 15 years as a professional. Um, and you just need that balance, I think, to keep, to keep it right. Ladies and gentlemen, if you really love cricket, and even if you don't love cricket, I promise you this is a cracking read because I am, a, a, as I say, a peripheral cricket fan rather than a dedicated cricket fan, and there's some, just some lovely writing in it, not least our guest's introduction to all these prose pieces. And if you want to talk to him about it, or better yet, buy a copy of it, um, he'll be in the signing tent left and left again. Before we thank Jonathan, could we just have a round of applause for the wonderful Tino? Isn't he great? Hey, boy. Come on. There you go. There we are. Take your first bow, Tino. There we go. <laughs> hey, what do you reckon to that? There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Agnew. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. There we go. Thank you. See you later. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.